Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for Thursday, August 16th, the Unhinge Me Now edition. I'm Emily Bazelon in basically for David Plotz, who is off. I'm not sure where David is. Maybe he's in Vermont. Anyway, um, never fear. I am here with John Dickerson of CBS this morning. Hey, John. Hi. And Kirsten Powers from CNN, whose title I forgot to ask before we started. Kirsten, what's your official title? Uh, Political analyst. (laughs) Excellent. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're so glad you're here. On this week's show, we have three topics, as usual for you, followed by cocktail chatter. First topic, Trump has been dueling this week with his former aide, Omarosa Manigault Newman. She's teasing her book. He's getting mad at her. Um, There's confirmed discussion of non-disclosure agreements to work in the White House in the air. So we will chew through all of that. We'll be distracted by it, just like everyone else in the world. Our second topic will be the primary election results this week, which saw um, winners among Republicans who closely embraced Donald Trump. And a different story from Democrats. Um, the most interesting part to me was about minority candidates, especially African-Americans, winning in majority white districts, including in my home state of Connecticut. And our third topic, a star feminist philosopher at NYU has been found to have sexually harassed a male graduate. That finding comes from NYU. And this is a story about Title IX, the law that is supposed to create gender equality in education settings, really turning Title IX on its head. And so we'll talk about that case and what and about the support for this philosopher from other feminist academics. And of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. Omarosa Manigault Newman is on every single talk show in the world flogging tapes that she has. She's done, I would say, like a brilliant job of teasing her book and separating out these tapes into different dollops of news. Clearly, um, she knows what she's doing or someone she works with knows what they're doing. The biggest sort of explosive accusation here is that Trump, that she thinks that Trump um, has used, you know, the the worst racial epithet about black people, that there's supposedly a tape of this. Um, the accusation went from the idea that there was this tape floating around to Omarosa saying she'd heard of the tape. And then, so, and then she has a tape of two Republican operatives talking about this um, possibility during the campaign. So... Kirsten, how much attention should we be paying to this? Um, Omarosa has her own sort of credibility issues. She obviously backed the president um, incredibly strongly for a long time. She's been one of the um, principal African-Americans to play that role for him. Now, very predictably, she's making a move away from him to get her attention for her book. Um, How much would it matter if Donald Trump, if we do have a tape of Donald Trump saying the N-word? Well, if I was queen of the world, there would be nobody interviewing her. 
uh, I do. I am very bothered by the fact that the media is playing into this circus, which was originally created by Donald Trump. So it's not surprising that somebody he hired is now adding to the circus and using the media, you know, something like the Today Show, you know, which is typically pretty hard to get on to, to listen to somebody who, as you said, has zero credibility whatsoever. I mean, she even after she left, she was defending him saying he wasn't a racist. And the end in terms of the N word um, tape, I mean, obviously, it matters if he said something like that, but it won't matter to the people who support him. I don't think it would have any political impact whatsoever. Moreover, uh, there's plenty of evidence for Omarosa if she was paying attention that the president is racist. So he talks the way he talks in such dehumanizing terms about immigrants, you know, the very fine people um, at the Charlottesville, uh, you know, protest or what march, whatever you want to call it, which she said upset her so much. But yet a year later, she was still in the White House. Also, she's pretending that she saw the light when she was fired. In fact, she has a tape of herself getting fired. So Everything about it just smacks of somebody who's trying to make a buck and get rich over the fact that she got fired. John, what I, do you, you think? can't you can't dispute any of that. I think the um, so the question here is whether there's any value to the information from somebody who has uh, serious credibility issues. Uh, and one piece of information that is that is interesting to consider is why a person like this who has these credibility issues was a top mm-hmm. uh, official in the Trump administration, why she had um, high security clearance, and what this tells us about the world in which the president operates, which I think, and the, and the White House world itself, which I think is a... Um, is a story worth repeating. I think probably also those people who uh, who think race is at the center of both the way the president was elected and the way he runs his uh, his presidency. I think uh, they could make a case that um, Omarosa aside, uh, having a central conversation about the president and his relationship with race is one that should be going on all the time. And so, to the extent that the surface is that that that's not a bad thing. I think going back to the idea of how he runs his White House. So we actually interviewed Omarosa, uh, and I said, why should anybody trust you or listen to you, given the fact that you were taping not just when you were fired, which she said was uh, in order to, to kind of cover uh, or have a, a record so that they couldn't smear her. She would have, um, you know, a recording of this. And she, but I said, if you were taping even when during the campaign, and she said, well, they were, they lie so much, you know, I was protecting myself. So. <laughs> Just stop and yet, for a did minute. Did she call them out on here's, those lies? Right, here's a person who was paid taxpayer money to uh, speak about the virtues of the president and the people who worked in the administration, who privately was so questioning the virtues of those people that she was making tape recordings of them because she knew ultimately there would be some kind of Armageddon like this one that she is she is kicked off. So uh, I think that that's 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 new in the way White Houses run. Um, and it's just a kind of another extraordinary thing about this week, which isn't over uh, yet, as she on Thursday is planning more of these um, more of these disclosures. I mean, it strikes me. Amaros is a type, right? The tale telling former aide who comes forward to shed light on the inner workings of the White House. But she's like such a deeply cynical version mm-hmm. of this type, which is entirely fitting with this White House, that you would have someone, John, who's doing exactly the dance you were describing, but then, you know, also 
Because she was the black woman close to Donald Trump, she was providing this particular kind of cover for him. And if it's true, and I I think we should talk through this a little more, if it's true that a tape of Donald Trump saying the N-word wouldn't matter, Omarosa made a small contribution along the way to the to the not mattering, to the kind of political cover for Mm -hmm. Donald Trump that allowed white people and people in general who want to let him off the hook for race to look at her as an example, a kind of symbol of his personal um, tolerance of African-Americans. Well, let me ask you this, either one of you, this question, which is in the moral balance, as uh, if you can even do this kind of equation, but I'll tee it up and you can tell me it's a dumb question. Which is worse, to have used the word, and we don't know the context and all the rest, or to have been the nation's chief birther for five years or so, or however many years it was, um, carrying out a systematic and prolonged and aggressive campaign to suggest that the president, the African-American, previous African-American president was illegitimate. Which we all know, which is not something that needs to be disclosed in a tape. It's happened all in real time in front of everyone. Totally. Kirsten, what do you think? Well, I mean, I still would always, for me, the N-word is the sort of, you know, the worst of the worst of things that you can do because there's just no... There are people who could try to somehow justify the birther stuff. You know, I I don't agree with it, but there's just nobody that can say using the N-word is ever anything but viciously racist, right? So, but the broader point, I think, is what you're making is we already have tons of evidence about his racial animosity, you know, at, at best uh, in the in the way that he talks about people, the S-hole countries, the fact that he, why can't we have more Norwegians, you know, in the country? And so I think that he has shown this time and time again. And so what does it really add uh, in terms of value, what Omarosa is sharing? And I, I guess my concern is that I... Maybe I'm wrong and, you know, maybe, John, you can correct me on this. I just feel like there was a time that she wouldn't have gotten the media attention from the main, like, the really um, high-quality shows, you know, that, that like, your show wouldn't have been having her on. But maybe I'm wrong, you know, and that, 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 that somehow Donald Trump, this is part of his whole what he's doing to this country is just turning into spectacle where we're talking about this and we're not talking about, you know, things that I think are actually important that are actually ha- harmful to the country. In the end, what does Omarosa really add to that? Right. I, well, it depends because in a previous administration, this would seem. Let's imagine it's a previous administration <laughs> that operates along traditional norms. Mm-hmm. If she you would had be what, bizarre this land. would be, but this would, but her disclosures would also be, and we should know, yeah, they'd be extraordinary. They would be so, yeah, such a Surprising. departure. So the question is, uh, so I don't know. I mean, I, I I'm, uh, but don't you, I'm, don't you think though? I definitely b- agree with your larger yeah. point, which is that this is a part of the the freak show, the that, um, uh, and I think we've wrestled, I've wrestled, the entire press has wrestled with the. Uh, amount of the f- the freak show that that needs to be covered because he's this is the president of the United States this was a senior advisor to the president of the United States making extraordinary claims and yet um, that shouldn't blot out the sun right I guess the only thing I would say is if this had happened under Obama which of course it never would have because they never would have hired somebody like this but let's just say they did they hired somebody who was kind of sketchy who had a history Unhinged, of yeah shall we yeah kind of sketchy and had a history of creating drama. And for whatever reason, they were a family friend. Who knows? They get in the White House and then they leave and they're disgruntled. I feel like most pe- reporters would have looked at them and said, this is a kind of disgruntled, crazy person. We're not going to take them seriously. 
right? But yet with Omarosa, she has this long history of being dishonest and of creating drama. And yet we're saying like, oh, well, let's listen to her. Even though a lot of the stuff that she's saying, frankly, is stuff that was reported. So she's saying, oh, well, talking about the light switches, which Maggie Haberman had reported on and, and kind of repackaging stuff. Um, and it's like, what is she really saying that that's new? Even the N-word tape, we all had heard about, right? So I, I don't, like, how do we know she even actually heard it? I mean, I just find her so well, incredible. Here's, here's one thing I disagree with you about, or maybe I'm hoping to disagree mm-hmm. with you about. I wonder if a tape of the N-word would make a difference to some Trump supporters, because for a lot of people, I think mostly a lot of white people, there's a shared feeling. And I, you know, Kirsten, it sounds like you and I don't mean this in any sort of critical way, but like you were just expressing it, that there's just something about that insult and that world word. It's a third mm-hmm. rail and it's and people judge it as like indicative of of some a white person's personal prejudice and animosity and um vitriol right. in a way that almost nothing else seems to accomplish. Um, I mean, to me, I would have answered the birther question differently. Like, I think that that was tremendously um, destructive mm-hmm. for President Obama, obviously, but for people of color in the country. And I think you can point to, you know, Trump's dehumanizing language, calling women dogs also is um, destructive. Right. But there's something about, I think, for we fasten on the N-word as like this epithet that nobody is allowed to say. And so if you dare to say it, that means that you are like a true racist. And then I think it would be hard for some members of Congress to like keep countenancing everything they've countenanced so far. It would just be so clear and simple, um, an expression but of I racism. Guess I, I mean, I agree with what you said about the N-word being the ultimate, exactly that. There's just no question. You can't, there's no way to dress it up like, I used it in a way that's acceptable. Um, I just think it's all out there already. And co- these people in Congress have decided to still stand by him. And that I think there's a very, yeah, no, you're very right cult like, you know, as people have pointed out, quality to this where nothing you say or nothing he says or does seems to make any difference. I mean, I just, there's just so many, I mean, taking children from their parents, you know, I mean, it's just, there's, there just seems to be nothing that shifts. Now, maybe it might affect an independent. That's, that's true. Well, right. Right. Some people are shifting, right? Yeah. I mean, I think we'll talk about this in our second topic, but I mean, it's clearly affected the, the number of people who are running on the democratic Mm -hmm. side, the kind of people who are running, the kind of people that are being elevated by the, by the democratic party and some of the behavior in, uh, in the Republican party, um, the uh, so maybe we should. Well, track we, I'm on not to quite two. ready to move, although we will in a minute. So I want to bring up a couple of um, new examples of norm breaking, norm violating. So we learn from this episode something we had actually Ruth Marcus had reported months ago that White House employees are being asked to sign non-disclosure agreements in a way that totally breaks with. Um, tradition. Uh, There have been these kinds of agreements in the past only about classified information. These seem to be much broader NDAs that essentially are lifted from language that the Trump organization used um, and would seem to be totally unconstitutional at odds with um, law. So we've got that going on. And then this week we have Trump um, revoking the security clearance for the former CIA director, John O. Brennan. Clearly, and Trump said this because of the Russia investigation and because Brennan has been a Trump critic. And these both seem to be 
like just deeply troubling. What else is there to say? The idea of muzzling White House staffers so they can't discuss non-classified information when they leave. We'll learn even less about internal deliberations, even if it's just an intimidation tactic and it's useless. And then taking away Brennan's security clearance is obviously sending a message that if you criticize the president from outside the government, um, you're going to lose this sort of position of honor that came with that access and you won't be available anymore as a source of advice to people who are still in the government, which was traditionally why we allowed people to hold on to their security Mm -hmm. clearances after they left. Um, John, what do you think the significance of all of this is? Well, the retaliatory significance, especially what what strikes me is a little bit, uh, I mean, I I was going to say abnormal, but but it's such a hard word to use these days is that if you're a president who's under investigation for obstructing justice and trying to get in the way of an investigation into Russia to then take retaliatory action because of the Russia investigation seems to me something you just wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to do. And you might not a, admit it. You might also not admit it to the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. I mean, so it's punishable. I think Fran Townsend, who's the Homeland Security Advisor to President Bush, made the point this morning that um that, you know, this again shows us something about the president. There is a way to take people's um, clearances away and there are reasons to do that and all of that. But in this case, it was basically the president doing it on a whim. Dan Coats, the director of the National Intelligence uh, Agency, said um, uh, you know, his comment was, or the, the agency's comment was, well, the president has ultimate discretion, which is the way we've come to recognize when somebody is in disagreement with something the president did. Um, there was reporting that he didn't even, that Coates didn't even know the president was going to do this. So Again, it's a, it's another instance in which the president you um, he has I think what well, he he has authority as the executive to do this, but there is a system set up uh, which he's blowing through, and which is just another instance in which he's done so. Um, and this is basically not you know for national security reasons, but because he doesn't like what Brennan's been saying. Right. It must be so satisfying though. There are a few things as president you can just do, like ways in which you are actually an imperial figure. Pardons are another one, mm-hmm. and we've seen Trump also use them in a kind of whimsical, unsystem-driven manner. Kirsten, what are your thoughts about this revoking of um, Brennan's security clearance? Well, like like you just said, one of the first things I thought of was the pardons, which is he do- didn't go through the process that most presidents go through uh, before they you know, pardon somebody. And I think that the fact that it's imperial is something that appeals to him. I think Donald Trump likes to behave more like a king or an authoritarian, which is why he loves authoritarians and cozies up to them. And so I think that tells us something about him. And of course, it's very despotic to be a person who tries to punish anybody who criticizes you. Uh, We have a tradition. We used to have a tradition for all the problems that we have. And yes, we, you know, we had problems before Donald Trump came in in terms of, uh, you know, hyperpolarization. But he has just poured gasoline on the fire because we used to at least be able to say, Yes, we're in different parties, or maybe we even run against each other. Look at look at Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. You know, he makes her the sec- her, his secretary of state after what everything that they went through during that election, and really not liking each other very much at the end of it. And you see that across the aisle as well. And now what you have um, with with Donald Trump is he can't even say John McCain's name right. You know, f- recognizing him for a bill that's passed and named after him because. John McCain criticizes him even though he's battling brain cancer, and he can't just be decent towards people who have served our country, whatever you think of them, 
because they've criticized him and now want to revoke their security clearances. He's just kind of blowing through norms, right? That's, I think, making everything even more divisive. I think we should also add, back to your earlier point, uh, Kirsten, that this is uh, some analysts of the of the White House and uh, some people close to it are basically also saying that since this order was actually signed back in June, July, that the unveiling of it today is a part of the the cycle of of attention grabbing right. and distraction, distraction that you just that you you described right. earlier. I suppose distract from Omarosa, although sometimes it's hard to see right. what, what distraction is to, is, is <laughs> taking away from which distraction. Fire after the yeah. Next. yeah. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. On that note, we're going to switch to something that is like, sub. I feel like we can feel clean about this one. Pure substance, maybe. Okay. It's primary season. So we're going to talk about um, the party separately. Let's start with the Republicans. We have a few examples in the last week of Republicans winning primaries where they're clearly being rewarded for sticking as closely as possible to Donald Trump. So in Kansas, Chris Kobach will be the Republican nominee for governor. Um, he defeated a kind of like mild manner, um, not exactly incumbent, but um, the guy who'd shown up after Sam Brownback became the ambassador. Um, Kobach is, you know, probably best known nationally for being one of the real champions of um, voter purges and of the um, myth, essentially, that voter fraud is widespread. Um He's going to be running in Kansas. Uh, and then we have the Minnesota R- Republican running for governor will be Jeff Johnson, not Tim Pawlenty, who had criticized um, Donald Trump and had previously been the governor of Minnesota. In Connecticut, there was a three-way primary um, in the GOP, and the winner was Bob Stefanowski, a super rich businessman from um, the wealthiest part of my state who it was also immediately endorsed by Trump. So, you know, obviously, John, the president is proving ever more that he has a stronghold on Republican primary voters. And then, of course, the question is whether these folks are going to be viable in the general election. Right. He's 14 for 14, according to the New York Times, since June in his endorsements. Now, that's not to say that once he sprinkles holy water on somebody, they immediately shoot up the polls. But if you are in the in the slipstream with the kind of Trump view of the world, then you're going to do well in Republican politics. And that's why we've seen some of these candidates reform and change their opinions about Donald Trump, the winning ones. Um, To me, the most striking thing, just in terms of the current history of the Republican Party, was Tim Pawlenty's loss in Minnesota. Now, there were reasons Pawlenty could lose that have nothing to do with Donald Trump. He went from being a governor to then being a Washington lobbyist. Never a great thing when outsiders are in to be running as a former lobbyist. But Pawlenty had uh, criticized uh, President Trump and uh, ultimately, after he was defeated, said, you know, I'm just not a a Donald Trump uh, kind of politician. What's striking to me about that is that in 2010, when Pawlenty was thinking about running for president, he his entire pitch, uh, his mother died when he was 16. His father was a truck driver. His entire pitch was, I'm the guy who is the Sam's Club Republican. I am and understand the forgotten man and woman. It was the Donald Trump pitch from a kind of intellectual level, not the gut sort of 
gut cultural level. But, but it was like playing. The kind of pot, I am you, the populism of that part of it, which Trump yes. actually, of course, can't do that. It, it was an attempt to go after the exact same message, just in a very, very different way. So now he has been crumpled by the force of Donald Trump in the Republican Party. And just if we're thinking about the where the party has come from and where it's been, by the way, we're talking about a state like Minnesota, too, which is not uh, your traditional Republican um, state. So that, to me, was one of the most uh, interesting kind of just points along the way in which this in which the Republican Party is changing. And I'll shut up now, but we still obviously have the question of, of the general, which is obviously quite different than the primary. I mean, one thing to point out, too, is Minnesota and Connecticut are not ruby red right. states by any means. Right. I think it's a risk for them. So what is it if, if Tim Pawlenty has this story and he's this, you know, this sort of populist type of you know, has a populist type story. And so what is it that Donald Trump is giving to people that is making them say, I don't want a Tim Pawlenty, I want a Chris Kobach. And to me, it really seems that it's much more about rhetoric than it is about policy. It's much more about being nasty and putting people down and being kind of extremist. And, you know, and, and like you said, with Chris Kobach, I mean, his calling card is basically trying to make it harder for you know, people of color to vote, right? And so it's what is, you know, yeah. it, it says a lot about the Republican Party that somebody like Tim Pawlenty is now out of the mainstream. And we've seen this over and over where we're told people who are who are much more conservative than him are somehow not conservative enough because they're not Trumpy. And so what does it mean to be Trumpy? And the only thing I can see is it just means being insulting to people and having no regard for norms. And so I think Republicans have to kind of have a reckoning about that. It's like, is this who the Republican Party wants to be? That's interesting. I mean, I feel like some of these candidates don't personally embody that nastiness necessarily. Um, but getting so cottoning to it has its own effect. And endorsing right? it. And I'm really curious. It's and endorsing, endorsing it. it. Right. Yeah. I mean, even if you're not doing it yourself, when you like get right up and snuggle up against yeah. it, it's going to come off on you in some way. I mean, I'm going to go on for a moment about Connecticut, although I'm about to do that in another minute. So it's going to be a lot of Connecticut <laughs> for the next few minutes. Um, we had, There was a three-way race for the primary. Stefanowski was the underdog. Being the next governor of Connecticut is going to be the worst job ever. We have a huge budget hole. Our current governor, like a perfectly decent person, has like a 16% approval rating. The Democrats nominated um, Ned Lamont, who is a businessman um, like Stefanowski. Stefanowski, but a Democrat. And it's going to be kind of a weird war to get a position that like will then be totally thankless. What's so fascinating for me about Lamont is he ran against Lieberman from the left uh, during him. the war, beat him. Lieberman then went to become an independent. But if you look at what's happening in the Democratic Party these days, Lamont was just a little early. Uh, although you say he's going at it again. Um, and I should say, be, he Lamont beat Lieberman in, in the, the primary, and primary. then Lieberman switched and won in the general. So um, on the Republican side, just on the general question, one, one of the things that'll be, one of the things that's interesting to me is you look at um, a state like Wisconsin, which was once this kind of interesting place for the new Republican. This is the new pre-Trump era Republican. You had Scott Walker, very popular, had done things that the base liked in terms of taking on the unions. Paul Ryan was in the ascendancy back then, uh, having run with Mitt Romney. People talked about him running for president. Well, now Ryan is out. His district is potentially up for grabs. Walker is in a pickle running for for governor because he's got to both 
um, not criticize the president. But on the other hand, the president's tariff policies are hurting Wisconsin specifically. And then you have Tammy Baldwin, who is running against um, State Senator Lee uh, Vukmir, I think is how you pronounce sure. it, um, who has said at one point that Trump was offensive to everyone. So why does that matter? Well, she got the nomination, so she's going to be the Republican. So what does Tammy Baldwin do? Does she make Trump an issue in Wisconsin, which is a state that Trump did better and than anybody was expecting uh, in the general? Or does she, because, of course, one of the things for the general election is how much Democrats in these close races, which will determine the control of the House, make President Trump an active issue or just let him be the issue for Democratic turnout that he will always be? Because in part, probably because of the cyclotron we were talking about earlier, which is just this constant repetition in the news cycle of why Democrats find the president objectionable, which is, as a news matter, gets priorities out of whack, but as a base turnout matter, probably keeps people uh, continually motivated with reasons for to turn out. So I guess my basic question at the end is, what are these people in these tough Senate races in, in Trump states? How much do they actually prosecute Donald Trump uh, putting him on the ballot? And how much do they let it just happen as a natural in the natural course of politics? Yeah, that'll be really interesting to watch. I'm going to put in a short plug for my um, colleague Dan Kaufman's excellent book, The Fall of Wisconsin, if you want to understand changing politics in Wisconsin. It's excellent. So let's talk about the Democrats. Um, I totally taken with a race to the west of New Haven, the 5th District in Connecticut. The Democrats nominated Johanna Hayes, an African-American who was a National Teacher of the Year, made a bio biographical video that went viral that begins with her accepting her award from President Obama. She seems like she's kind of lighting things up. Um, it's a district that is 88% white. And that is like something we haven't seen very much of in this country. I mean, there are a few examples of it. We have Mia Love, who's a Republican in Utah, representing a mostly white district. There's um, a Democratic congresswoman in Delaware named Lisa Blunt Rochester. And there are more of these candidates running this year. Nine um, Democrats running for Congress in majority white districts. Among them are Lauren Underwood, um, who's running in the 14th district in Illinois. So... I mean, this to me seems like it could be groundbreaking. Forever, we've had this assumption with research to back it up that black candidates could only win in majority minority districts. There's like Voting Rights Act law predicated on that. Now the research shows that, you know, you can have a district that lets um, minority voters pick the candidate of their choice with only like 40 percent minority um, voting or or. It depends on the part of the country, obviously, but these districts, these races, um, this race in Connecticut suggests something else entirely. And I wonder, um, Kirsten, if you feel like this sort of lights a new path for the Democrats or maybe like people are making too big a deal out of it. Also, a lot of these candidates are women. And I wonder what you make of that. Well, the the studies that you're, rec- that you're talking about, though, are that they're talking about in Democratic districts, right? Not just in general well, districts. Well, the Voting Rights Act research has to do with like how many, um, what percentage of a district has to be minority in terms of um, either registration or likely voter population in order for it to satisfy the requirements of the Voting Rights Act that the redistricting not do- take away power. Mm-hmm. So actually, that's something that's not um, just Democratic districts yeah. necessarily. Well, I was just asking because the Women's Media Center just had um, a s- survey that they had had put out talking about, you know, more women uh, being elected, at least in the in the primaries. And of course, most of them are Democrats. Um, and that 
when you look at you ask Democrats, you ask Republicans, are you more likely to vote for someone because they're a woman? You know, for Republicans, that's a non-issue, really. And for for Democrats, it's actually a plus, right? So I, I'm wondering if now, if it's yep. because that's it's like a ten point yeah, advantage, if it's, that's saw. becoming a plus Crazy. now to be, you know, somebody who is, you know, not just somebody who's bringing another perspective, which I think is really important to Democrats, but also I think Democrats love firsts, right? You know, we want to break down walls. Progressives want to break down walls and have new people. And so that actually makes it a more positive thing. And I also was thinking back to uh, during the 2012 election, how, or I mean, the 2008 election, how a lot of people felt like, oh, well, there's no way Barack Obama, and I know a lot of people on his campaign felt like there's no way Barack Obama can win Iowa because it's so white. And then, of course, he did. But it was progressive. So I think that it depends a lot in where, where you are. Although Obama was interesting because he won in you know in Iowa and then won in the general in Iowa, which was even right. you know since it was a swingy state. Mm-hmm. But think about it, Hayes is she's going to win in the general because it's a Democratic district. Yeah, so I mean, the race funny. thing is not as. It Salient. seems like it's well, not it's, a heavily Democratic district, though. Remember, and the other thing is, like, it's a very wealthy part of Connecticut. I mean, but, it, it was a seen as a. It, it's true that the person who's leaving the seat is a Democrat, and that Cook now has it in the safely right. Democratic column. But historically, Gary Franks in the '90s was yeah. an African American Republican who represented that district. But, uh, but the African American Republican time. in the '90s was different than where the parties yeah. are today. But um, what's what is interesting about Hayes is that she has. 538 has done some analysis of who the who's winning the primaries in the non-incumbent races. Um, and women are winning by big numbers. And they, what's, what's interesting, which Hayes doesn't, the box she doesn't check, is that they have lots of experience, governing mm-hmm. experience, which is interesting in terms of women and the whole notion of whether women have to clear a higher bar in terms of governing experience. But it felt like the story of the Democratic races this year is basically in safer districts. Democrats are... are are nominating firsts um and uh and, but then in those suburban districts which are going to be the ones that give democrats the control of the house if it happens they're nominating people who fit the fit the the you know match their district um and so that's felt to me that like it's been it's been reaffirmed in in these primaries as well i mean the other thing is personal storytelling, right? Yeah. That with both Ocasio-Cortez and the Johanna Hayes video, you see this very compelling personal narrative that I think gives voters a sense like this person has propelled herself forward. She is self-made and, you know, that's appealing. Right. Also interesting, Hayes said she was not going to support Pelosi, which I don't think cha- I don't think that's going to create a brush fire, but in terms of the, the, this newer kind of candidate. Before we turn to our third topic, um, we're doing a live show at the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin on September 29th. However, the tickets for our show are sold out, but you can still come to our show. You can buy an all-day pass, and then you can go to all the Slate podcasts on Saturday. It's going to be a fabulous lineup, Um, and you can also still buy a ticket to our cocktail hour. So to do all of those great things, go to slate.com slash live. Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, And Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. 
We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. Okay. So now let's turn to topic three. John had to go. So Kirsten and I are going to hash this one out on our own. It is a fascinating story. It's um, kind of head spinning. So um, there's a world-renowned professor of German and comparative lit at NYU named Avital Ronal. I have no idea if I'm saying her last name correctly. She has been accused of sexual harassment by a male former graduate student named Nimrod Reitman. And NYU conducted an 11-month investigation under Title IX. This is the law that um, makes sure there's equal access to education for all people um, in all areas related to their gender. Let's put it that way. NYU found that Ronell had indeed um, sexually harassed Reitman, um, saying that she'd created an environment that was sufficiently pervasive to alter the terms and conditions of Reitman's learning environment. She got suspended for the coming academic year. So there's all kind of like titillating text messages and details about the story that she was making him sleep in her bed and um, touch her in various ways. And she was calling him, you know, various intimate endearments. Um, there also along the way are some texts from him um, expressing his fondness for her. But he says that she had all the power in the relationship and that it turned against him and she wouldn't let him out of it and that he was kind of stuck um, pretending to be her admirer and her um, confidant. One of the tricky things about this story is that a whole bunch of prominent feminist academics, um, including Judith Butler, who is probably the best known of them, have come out in defense of Ronell. They've they've defended her, you know, intellectually, but they also use the kind of language to defend her that has been harshly criticized by feminists when male professors have lined up um, on the side of men or when people in general line up on the side of men who are accused of sexual harassment in this Me Too era. So just to read a little bit of this letter, um, these academics said that they'd all seen Ronell's relationship with her students, and some of us know the individual who has waged this malicious campaign against her. We hold the allegations against her do not constitute actual evidence, but rather support the view that malicious intention has animated and sustained this legal nightmare. In other words, this is a witch hunt. Um, Kirsten, what do you make of all of this? Well, I think that, well, another thing that they put in the letter was they were, would testify to the grace and keen wit of the pro- professor, professor Ronell, which is also very similar to what you will hear when men are accused of, uh, of sexual harassment or even sexual assault, where people will come out and, you know, and and use their public platform to say, I know this person, they would never do this. And of course, the thing to remember about sexual harassment is, the fact that you have never seen them do that actually doesn't mean that they didn't do that. So the fact that they're a nice person to you, the fact that they're a good professor, those things are kind of irrelevant. Uh, and, and Totally yeah, irrelevant. Yeah, and feminists know that. <laughs> That's what's so bizarre about this. And so yes. what struck me about it was like, wow, they sound like the old boys club, right? Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, something 
I'm just going to throw out there and see what you think about it, because this is what came to me is just that I think that institutional power can be problematic even when it's wielded by women, meaning women yes. who become part of the institution. And and this professor is you know called a rock star professor. Um, they start to, I think, identify too much with the sort of patriarchal institution, right? And they start to take on some of these behaviors. And so you see people who are in every other way would understand the, the problems with you know, structural problems with institutional patriarchy, which a lot of these universities are, um, and academia is. And yet, when it comes to one of their own being accused, they just sort of, I don't know, is it unconscious? Or they just, this is, they've gotten to the top, and somehow they're identifying with this. I don't quite know how it happens. But I don't see any difference between the way they're reacting and any other powerful man. I had the same thought. And now I'm going to just play devil's advocate, which Mm -hmm. is that for me, the really hard thing about these stories when I haven't reported them out myself or feel like I have any kind of inside track on understanding the facts is that the defense that says this accuser is lying is either like fair because it's true and you have a, you know, situation in which whoever is making the accusations is doing it not in good faith for their own reasons, or it's not true. And then it's a totally horrible thing to say about someone and really corrosive to the whole Me Too movement into holding people accountable. The Mm -hmm. whitewash sounds exactly the same as the legitimate defense would sound if the accuser is actually lying. Now, we know that accusers rarely lie. I mean, we don't know that necessarily in the context of employment-based sexual harassment. We know that in the context of women reporting rape to the police. Mm -hmm. I tend to think that the incentives align against making false accusations like this because it brings down a lot of wrath and a lot of trouble. Um, Nimrod Reitman is not making himself more employable by coming forward against this powerful figure at all. And the fact that this story leaked also seems to have had nothing to do with him. Unless I misunderstand the news coverage, it does not sound like he's the one who um, brought out all these confidential documents because NYU's proceeding under Title IX was um, a secret proceeding. So, you know, there. I feel like we're, we should be giving Reitman the benefit of the doubt that we give other um, complainants in this situation who tend to be women. And yet it seems like this group of female feminist academics absolutely did not do that in their eagerness to line up um, on Ronell's side. And that seems really disappointing. Well, I mean, the other thing, it's not, in this case at least, it's not just a he said, she said kind of thing. There are emails and texts, right? So she's referring to him in emails as my most adored one, my sweet cuddly baby, my cocker spaniel and my astounding and beautiful Nimrod. There's another one where she talks about, I will try very hard not to kiss you. You know, another one said, time for your midday kiss. My image during meditation, we're on the sofa. Your head is on my lap, stroking your forehead, playing softly with your hair. I mean, now, I guess you could say maybe it was, you know, mutual or something, but it's it, it's still inappropriate. I mean, she's his advisor and professor. Um, another thing that makes this very con- complicated is they're both gay. Right. Yeah. No, I haven't. I feel like there's that part of the story yeah. is like just a little beyond me. Um, and so right. I don't, he has you know, a husband. She identifies as queer. Yeah. Yeah. And so I and and so that her I, friends could be saying, I know where she's on the spectrum and this wouldn't happen. 
Although right? she doesn't seem to be denying the physical contact. She seems hmm. to be saying that he invited it and welcomed it and has now turned on her for his own reasons. Um, so I was struck. I'm going to read a text that um, Reitman wrote. He wrote to her, I am your best friend and I intend to be that person as long as you will accept it. And I'm just going to confess that I read that text and thought, huh. I wonder if he really did write that under some kind of like workplace duress to curry favor or whether he meant it at that moment. And I find myself frequently struggling with this side of Title IX stories, which is that we have because we have texts and emails in so many of these cases, we see this sort of both sides of the communication and some kind of mutual assurance going on. And I don't think it should be dispositive, meaning I don't think it means that he wasn't harassed, that he wrote that. But it does always for me, like I have to stop for a minute and think about the power dynamics that could lead someone to write that and not mean it and to do a whole series of things, it sounds like, which he's now saying, you know, he did with deep ambivalence or out of some sense of feeling like he was being forced into it by this power dynamic. It's well, tricky. yeah. And I know I've done it. You know, when I've been sexually harassed, you could still find emails where I have been friendly to that person just out of fear of, um, you know, when I was younger, when I felt more vulnerable. And so the question is, and I think this is another thing that I don't know the answer to, is do men and women respond to these things differently or do they respond to them the same. And I want to... Well, this suggests they respond the similar okay, but right? I mean, I think he... If we take him at his word, he felt threatened. Okay, but... Right. So if we, yeah. So, yeah. And the reason I'm asking is because I have a very close friend who was sexually harassed for a long time by his boss, um, pressuring him to have sex. And when he wouldn't, you know, retaliating against him and making his life really a living hell for years and years and years. And I said to him, wow, you know, how did that affect you psychologically? And he said... Oh, it didn't affect me psychologically. It just was a horror show to deal with, right? Yeah, Whereas a woman would say, I mean, for me, it would say it made me feel like, was something wrong with me? Is there, am I only here because they find me attractive? Have I, like, is there a different psychology? Mm. I don't know. You know, that's just an anecdote. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting that Reitman seems to have felt pressured and coerced, if we take him at his word, in the same way that you'd imagine a female graduate student would feel. And I mean, given the way these relationships can play out in when there's like bad juju, I can totally imagine that because this person is your whole line into the profession. I mean, without their backing and mentorship and recommendations, you're kind of sunk or certainly you can feel that way. It was interesting detail in this case, though, that one of Reitman's pieces of evidence was he felt that Ronell had not given him the same um, glowing recommendation she gave other students. And that turned out not to be the case. At least NYU analyzed her letters and thought that she had given him a comparable kind of letter. Um, you know, one thing that strikes me about all of this is that power imbalance in these cases just rears its ugly head every time. And, you know, there are plenty of marriages that come out of power imbalances and come out of academic relationships, including professors' relationships with students. But, but, but it seems so important for people not to sleep with or like get all physically and emotionally involved with their students when they are their students. And, And yet we seem to be having to learn that lesson over and over again. It's not just harmful 
sometimes to the student like it is in this case, it's also harmful to the other students. Yes. Because in the same way, if you're in a work environment and the boss is sleeping with one of the people and favoring them and having all this intimate time with them, it creates a hostile environment for everybody. Yeah, just a sense of discomfort and that someone's getting special treatment, whether it's negative or positive, you know. But what do you think, Emily, about the claim that the feminists who have defended her make, which is a you know, which is basically that women can't really like that 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 Title IX was meant to protect women, you know, from sexual harassment or discrimination. Well, I, uh, yeah, I just, not men, and it's not, and, and that and that really because of the power differential that women don't have enough power in society to really be oppressing men. Yeah, I just don't buy that at all. I mean, to make the really obvious point, there are um, men who are harassed by other men and they're deserving of protection. But also to go back to your point earlier, women can very much embody institutional power and they can wield it in bad ways that put Mm -hmm. other people down. And I feel like we're just in denial as like a gender if we don't own up to that and more closely examine our own complicity in that kind of dynamic. Do you think there's a generational difference maybe also in the, do we know, I didn't, I actually didn't see all the women who are on the letter. Are they um, older? You know, That's interesting. Yeah, but they're, you know, she's, you know, an older feminist. So I assume the people who are coming around her are older and there is such a difference, I think, in the way younger people, millennials obviously think very different about this. And I think even Gen X people think very differently about this. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, and I question. wonder if that plays into it. Right, if this is maybe like a kind of second wave group of women who, you know, in my experience, and this isn't true universally by any means, but there are certainly academics, older female academics who just worked incredibly hard. They had to overcome such big barriers, right? That like the notion that you could, you know, reverse that power dynamic, that you could have a male graduate student feel threatened. I think it might seem Mm -hmm. kind of preposterous to them, but I don't think it's actually preposterous. Right. It's It's such a core feminist theory that, you know, the oppressed sort of can internalize the power structure, right? <laughs> so it's right, like they should kind of know that they're vulnerable to that. That yes, and but I also I also see it like even with the Me Too movement, where you see some older feminists saying, "Oh, you know, these younger people, you know, just deal with it. Yep. It's not that big of a deal." And it's like, no, actually, you know, like yes, you did have to deal with that. Um, and that wasn't good. And like you had to yeah, deal with it in the bad. fact you surmounted it doesn't yeah. mean we should just but, like ignore it forever. Yeah. Yeah. But you're not like a snowflake because you think that, you know, Al Franken shouldn't grab people's butts. Right. <laughs> you know what right, I mean? Like right, that's right. not. It's funny. So I think Al Franken it, is such a dividing line along exactly yeah. these lines. Like I've had arguments with older women, um, older female academics, actually, about Al yeah. Franken. There's something about that story that um, just like. Oh, yeah. Same with me. Yeah, right. I think it gets right at these questions. Right. All right. Guess what? John came back. I didn't know you were going to come back. Uh, Well, you know, the amazing magic of television. And you have perfect timing because we're right exactly ready to turn to cocktail chatter. So, John, I'm hoping that you're going to get some time to relax this weekend. No, you're shaking your head. Oh, well. Well, anyway, you you can run around with a drink in your hand of one kind or another. What will you be chattering about? Well, I'll be chattering about um, the movie Operation Finale, which is about the uh, Israeli effort to kidnap uh, Adolf Eichmann. Um, And uh, Sir Ben Kingsley's 
portrayal of Eichmann is amazing. And so I think everybody should watch this film. Um, it's amazing for this reason. He has played characters uh, from the World War II period and specifically from the Holocaust. Um, he has played sympathetic characters. He, in this case, um, is not Adolf Eichmann. And yet his portrayal of them, uh, of Eichmann, and the way he talked about it on CBS This Morning was... This, I mean, he basically said there is Eichmann is in all of us, which is this. And of course, the debate over Eichmann and the banality of evil and the way in which and, and is a longstanding debate uh, stemming from his trial in Jerusalem. But but that I don't want to necessarily engage with that. What I would recommend to people is Kingsley's portrayal, which is, I mean, from the from these little moments in just the way he breathes um, and you'll have to watch the film to to uh to see it he just carries off this character um in a way that is so powerful i don't know whether it's real because of course i don't know about eichmann but um that captures the complexity of the idea that here is this thoroughly evil person um and yet in every frame they cannot seem evil and um anyway it's just a great piece of acting Uh, and and it's a great story too the the story of how these Israeli special agents went to Argentina and the uh, narrow escape uh, and ability to get find Eichmann, first of all, then get him out. It's an amazing story. Yeah, they were super determined. They were on his trail. Um, and it almost blew up many, many times. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it was amazing. Awesome. Cool. Um, Kirsten, what about you? I hope, do you get to do some relaxing this weekend? And what kind of drink are you craving? <laughs> um, I... I'm trying to think, do I get to relax this weekend? I think I do. I think I get to relax. Um, Good. And um, I'm craving some Friulian wine, which is, you know, Robert, uh, my fiance is an expert in wine. And we our house, we have like 500 bottles of this wine. And it's amazing. Um, That's so awesome. Yeah. I want to come so, to your house. Oh, come. Come anytime. <laughs> um, and um, what I'll be talking about is kind of a downer. Uh, but it's something that's definitely on my mind, and I think on a lot of you'll m- need wine. Yes, to get I will need it. wine to get through this, which is this story that has broken about this two-year investigation of sexual abuse of children in Pennsylvania um, in six Catholic dioceses, and um, it's just it's absolutely horrifying the things that are alleged in this, including that you know this was sort of a pedophile ring going on what they called a ring of predatory priests the priest had given the victims gold crosses to wear so other predators would be able to identify the victims it's just harrowing and horrifying and the grand jury said it's like a playbook for concealing the truth so it's 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 once again what happened which was horrific but then the fact that the church was actually working overtime to conceal the truth and really were you know according to the grand jury report less interested in what happened to the children and more interested in sort of tamping down what they saw as a scandal and i you know i converted to catholicism in 2015 um, and spent a lot of time you know talking to people about this issue and i had been told like many people that this had been dealt with Um, that this was all behind the church, that everything was out. And so I think for a lot of Catholics that I've been talking to, they're they're really despairing over this because, I mean, we were talking about institutional problems earlier, and this is obviously a serious institutional problem that – that they haven't really been holding people accountable and they haven't really been honest. And the only reason that we found out about this, frankly, is because the law came down on them. It's not something that they – 
chose to um, reveal. And so I think the thing that I would love to talk to people about is how do you combat this? And I, of course, think that if there were more women in positions of influence, that there would be hopefully more um, accountability, though, as we were talking earlier, women are just as capable of getting caught up in stuff like this, but they're not under the thrall of clericalism, which is really what under underlies all this, which is the sort of father knows best, you know, and the hierarchy is rules mentality that is so ingrained in the Catholic Church. Where are you on the celibacy question? So I'm sort of not sure. Um, my in- celibacy for the priest. For yeah. The priest. yeah, sorry. Yeah. So okay. I, I see... I, I see firsthand uh, what a difference it actually makes in terms of ministry. And I say this as somebody who was Protestant before and spent some time, I was never an evangelical, but I did spend some time in evangelical churches where men and women, you know, really was very difficult to interact because there was you know, always this, you know, the priest was married and he's hanging out with this woman. And for me, I've had so much ministry by priests who are um, completely dedicated to ministry. And, and I know so many other people who have, they have, all of their time is just serving the church and, and 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 serving people in the church, and so I have so personally benefited from that. Um, but I, you know, it's something I need to think about more. I'm not I'm not convinced that that's the cause of this, right. and um, and I and I also want to point out, you know, as as upset as I am with the Catholic Church, that most priests are not doing this. You know, in Pennsylvania, this right. was... Right, that seems really this important This was three, 300 priests over seven decades, and uh, in the 1970s, there were around six, 60,000 priests in the United States. So most priests are good people. And in my experience, that has been true. That doesn't excuse any of this. But John, I know you're Catholic. What do you think yeah. about the celibacy question? Well, I, I, it's, I keep thinking about well, first of all, yeah, to your point, I mean, I have, there have been priests who uh, throughout my life and then in my life right now who are so vital to me. Um, and they're, and so celibacy doesn't e- even, I mean, just as you said, they, their commitment to Christ is so shot through their life that I can't imagine them not being celibate. Right. Um, and it's kind of secondary almost. So, um, I, but I do, and, and this is where my, um, understanding of Catholic history as it was practiced by the priests fails me because I don't know how much of this, where to apportion celibacy and, and what portion of it is all those other things you described. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what struck me, of course, is the way is that, you know, so many people who are, um, just people of faith and Catholics, I think I, it, just the ones I know better is, you know, there's a constant wrestling with um, doubt and there's a constant wrestling with commitment mm-hmm. and there's a constant wrestling with all the temptations of life and priests and their and their dedication, priests who go through that same doubt, you know, Thomas Merton, who, who like wallowed in doubt, um, have nevertheless gotten through it. And right. so that when you hear of, th- you know, hundreds of priests, even though, as you quite rightly point out, it's, a, it's small in percentage terms, all of them failing it's it shakes shakes one um or and i can imagine it really shakes some people who think uh you know i've been trying to live this way and failing but always kind of rising up based on the example of those who um with whom who are who are able to maintain um their faith and yet there are people who of of the kind that i've been trusting myself um who behave this way i just can imagine it being incredibly destabilizing 
Yes, I agree 100%. 100%. All right, I'm going to do my cocktail chatter in a minute. But first, we had another great round from listeners of cocktail chatter this week. And I picked one by Mike Stannis, um, who's at They Call Me Marty on Twitter. His cocktail chatter for this week um, is the story of an American who stole rare bird feathers from a British museum to be used for fly fishing lures. This is a piece in the Smithsonian, and it's pretty delightful. Um, It just has this kind of, you know, heist um, excitement to it about seemingly such an unusual kind of um, theft for someone who just, like, really wanted to make fly fishing lures. Um, So we all should go check that out. And thank you, Mike, for writing in. My cocktail chatter is my effort to make sense of the utter befuddlement I feel about what is happening to the West Virginia Supreme Court. So there used to be five justices on this court. Now there are none. (laughs) Um, First, if I understand the order correctly, one person, um, Menace Ketchum, got indicted. He resigned last month, admitted to charges of wire fraud. He was out. Then there were four people left, and um, the West Virginia legislature impeached all of them this week. This is a big scandal over office spending. They were all spending a lot of money on um, office furniture. There was a $32,000 couch and an $8,000 chair and accusations that one of the justices had taken home this um, historic, beautiful bench that belonged to the state. There are two Democrats and two Republicans in this group of four. One of them actually resigned herself instead of getting impeached. And that means that the date of the the election to replace her will take place relatively quickly. For everybody else, it looks like what will happen is that the Republican governor will um, choose replacements and that those people could be in place all the way until 2020. So, look, I mean— I don't live in West Virginia. I don't understand why any judge at all would need an $8,000 chair. The fact that they were all doing this together um, also suggests that some bad groupthink took hold here in terms of like how you use taxpayer money. On the other hand, there is something disturbing going on about getting rid of government officials and then having elections take so long before the voters can weigh in again. Now, I suppose in the context of the courts, one could make a different argument because it's so um, questionable anyway, whether it's a good idea for voters to pick um, Supreme Court justices or any other kind of judge. I always feel, I actually don't have to do this in Connecticut, but when I used to vote in Pennsylvania and I had to vote for a slate of judges, I felt like I had not heard of any of them. I didn't really know what I was doing. It seemed really prone to kind of corruption and just like ignoramus voting. And yet, if this is politicized, if this is a way of getting rid of the whole court, which used to have three Democrats and two Republicans, and now we'll have five um, people chosen by the Republican governor, that seems bad. So anyway, what a mess. I just feel like I'm sort of gawking at it um, without a real solution, but a sense that like something is awry in the in the democracy that this is happening. Something's definitely awry. <laughs> something is awry. That's the one thing we can <laughs> yes. sure we've, we've all, that's the common theme of our chatter. Okay, I think on that note, we are going to end the show for this week. Our researcher is Izzy Rode. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest. There are lots of links there. Thanks to Izzy. 
our Facebook page, facebook.com slash GabFest. And check out our Twitter feed at SlaveGabFest, um, another well-populated destination. Please subscribe to the GabFest in iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. It really helps people find the show, which we appreciate. And thank you to Alan Pang and everybody at CBS who lets us take over their, what is this, their audio newsroom for the morning and are always so kind and welcoming. Buy tickets to Slate Day um, for the Texas Tribune Festival on September 29th in Austin. And I think that is enough from all of us. Okay, for John Dickerson and Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, thank you for joining us so much. It was totally a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm Emily Bazelon. Um, We'll be with you next week. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.